0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org slash donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: I'd like to started today by going through some of the historical context. If I repeat anything that your instructor said last week, forgive me, but take it as reinforcement of that which you already know. So uh, I I just want to go quickly through some of the issues of the change that happened in the period leading up to the birth of Christ in that intertestamental period both in Jewish culture and in the government change from, you know, you close out the Old Testament, and Persia is in charge, open up the New Testament, and Rome is now in charge. So, when we read the final pages of the Tanakh, of the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, we see a certain set of religious and cultural and historical circumstances. We open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we discover a completely set, different set of circumstances. And we'll want we'll to look at some of the things that had happened to bring about those changes. At the end of the Old Testament, the dominant empire is Persian. And at the beginning of the Gospels, the dominant empire is Roman. In that Persian period, just a quick overview Cyrus offered the decree that allowed the return of the Jews from captivity. He offered that decree in 538 BC. That was at the end of Daniel's ministry. Um, Daniel <coughs> records the transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. Ezra and Nehemiah mention Cyrus uh, as the one who brought the decree. That Cyrus who was prophesied by Isaiah. Uh, 536 BC through 70. Uh, the, uh, 536 BC ended the 70-year captivity. Um, Ezra chapter 1 talks about that. The temple construction begins. Uh, 516 B.C. the second temple is completed uh, through the ministries of Ezra, and Nehemiah, the walls rebuilt, people are resettling there. Uh, The books of Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, Esther were the last ones that you read because that was the close of the Old Testament period. In 480 B.C. there were Greek victories over Persia and then in 331 B.C. Alexander the Great, the leader of the Hellenistic Greek culture, Uh, Gained complete control over the whole area that the Persians had controlled and so what had been the Persian Empire became the Hellenistic Greek Empire Uh, The people that we call Greek they've always called themselves Helleniki Um, They call their home country Hellas in fact today that is that is the official technical name of their country uh, the Republic of Hellas uh, the name appears in a legend of Helen, which was a man's name first. Before it was a woman's name, it was a man's name. Uh, uh, Helen was the son of Decalion and Pyrrha in an origin myth that parallels some of the episodes of, of Genesis. Uh, Helen's father survived a great flood that Zeus used to wipe out humanity. And Helen himself became the founding father of all of the tribes of that area that we now know as Greece. And so those people have traditionally called themselves the Hellenistic people, the the people of Hellas. So the spread of their culture led by Alexander was called by them Hellenization. And they wanted to share their culture, literature, language, worldview, philosophy, religion, with others. So uh, between 331 and 324, uh, Alexander spread uh, his influence, his power, his army. And extended well into Asia, all the way to the borders of of modern day India. (coughs) But Alexander died as a young general in 323, and he had no heirs. He had no son to to hand off the empire to. And so four of his commanding generals split up the empire, and over time, they each appointed themselves king of their own kingdom, but they, they saw themselves together, united as one Hellenistic culture. So by 300 BC, there were four countries, or four nations, of Hellenistic kings under uh, commanders Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And the last two were important because the, the, uh, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemy Empire uh, wound up settling in the area around where the Jews lived. Um, the Seleucid Empire is the green part there, which is the old um, uh, Babylonian, Persian, Assyrian area. And the orange part in North Africa was the Ptolemy dynasty. And those two dynasties squabbled with each other and, um, and over time fought over the land of the Jews. Israel was controlled from Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty from 323 to 198. And in 198, the Seleucids overwhelmed the Ptolemies in that area. They were just looking for more real estate. They wanted more land, which gave them more uh, assets. And so in 198, the Seleucid, Greeks defeated the Ptolemaic Greeks and took over uh, the land of the Jews, which at that time was not a nation state. Uh, When the Jews came back from exile, they didn't have their own country. They weren't allowed to have their own king. They were still under Persian control. When Alexander the Great defeated Persia, the Jews still didn't have a homeland. They still didn't have their own government or their own king. So the next empire that controlled them were the Hellenistic Greeks. And so they remained that way for hundreds of years. Overview of the, of the empires that ruled the Jewish people. The Persian era from 538 to 336. The Hellenistic area from 336 to 165. The Maccabeans were the Jewish revolutionaries who successfully defeated the Seleucids. And then uh, the Roman era began in 63 all the way up to the birth of Christ and beyond that. So that's just the overview of whoever was ruling. So the Jews ruled themselves for a short period of time in between the Testaments. They gained gained liberty and they lost it very quickly. The Ptolemaic rulers implemented Alexander's grand plan for Hellenization over everything they controlled. And the idea was they would share their culture and their civilization. They thought their culture was better than anybody else's their philosophy, their religion, and their attitude was you should have some. They didn't, they didn't require which religion you had or which philosophy you embraced. The attitude was pick, make your choice, but it, it, it should be one of ours. And uh, th- they really cared about theater and athletics, uh, acting out stories on the stage, uh, whether it was tragedy, comedy, a musical, a poem set to a play that was a big deal uh, they liked the story crafting and acting it out on stage and The Hellenistic philosophy was the beauty of the human body and Celebrating the human body through athletics and that that's the basis of the modern Olympics was the old Hellenistic celebration of the human body They're the ones who came up with competition where people got awards got got Uh, Gold medals and silver medals and whatever that that began with the Hellenistic culture They loved the human body so much that all of their athletic events were held in the nude to really celebrate the human body and uh, Some of the cultures, especially the Jews thought that was just not modest And so there was opposition among the Jews against the athletics. They spread their language and their literature and They were successful there Uh, everywhere they went Greek was taught, was required, and it became the commercial language, and people embraced it. So most people in the, in, in the world at that time, uh, it, it would be common for them to speak three languages without having to go, go to language school just by the neighborhoods they lived in, speaking three languages or more was normal. So your own ethnic language, whatever your regional language was, and whatever the government required, well, that, that was common, three or four languages. So language and literature, their stories, their, 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 writings. And so the Ptolemies were always encouraging people, but not requiring change. So the Jews prospered under the Ptolemies. Uh, the, the, the Ptolemy Hellenistic people were uh, tolerant of the Jews. As long as the Jews didn't rise up against the government, go ahead and, and you can have your own guides. But throughout the area where the Jews were, there were were settlements being started, villages being planted, cities being built that were primarily Hellenistic. So that in Galilee, uh, there were clusters of cities around Nazareth that were majority Hellenistic people. And so by that, we now know that Jesus grew up as a minority in the community. There were more Hellenistic people there than Judaic people there. In the southern part of the country, south of Jerusalem, it was different. Majority Hebraic, minority uh, Hellenistic. And so that that makes, it helps us understand Jesus' movement throughout Galilee and people understanding Greek because that was the common language at the time. So uh, the Jews prospered until near the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty when conflicts between the Egyptian Greeks and the Syrian Greeks escalated, Israel was caught in the middle and the Syrians defeated the Egyptians in 198 and took control of Judea and annexed it. And the next two decades were turbulent because the leaders of the Seleucid Greeks were extremists. They had their religious police and they demanded that the Jews conform to Hellenistic culture. Uh, and they imposed a much more rigid and aggressive form of their Hellenization, demanding the Jews conform. And so the, the, in 198, the border between the green area and the orange area shifted south. During the 170s BC, Seleucid ruler Antiochus was one of the, one of the most vicious of those extremists. And he's the one who, uh, he tried to go to war against Egypt And Egypt had made an alliance with Rome, which was the up-and-coming new world power. And on his way to attack Egypt, uh, three Roman senators confronted him with their armed guards and told him if he went any farther across the border into Egypt, he would be met by the Roman navy. And they were sitting right offshore. He could see these hundreds of ships that Rome had. And so uh, he was humiliated on his way back home. He had to pass through Jerusalem, or he chose to pass through Jerusalem. And that's when he went out of his way to um, insult and ridicule and capture as many Jews as he could. And he attacked the city of Jerusalem. And he ordered, uh, this is the guy that ordered pigs slaughtered on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, he wanted the pig slaughtered in the Holy of Holies not just on the altar but take it into the Holy of Holies where the where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be and He wanted the pig slaughtered and then made into a soup or broth And then for them to take their their ladles and sprinkle this pig broth around every room and corridor and, and Courtyard of the temple because he had learned that this would contaminate the temple and really offend the Jews And he basically was asking, what's the most offensive thing we can do to humiliate the Jews? And pig broth spread everywhere, and and it did. And then he decided to send statues of Zeus throughout the land. So he had his his, uh, sculptors make these um, human sized Zeus statues, put them on carts, and drag them from village to village, set up the statue, and require all the Jews around there to come and make an offering to the statue and worship Zeus at the statue. Uh, Those who complied were considered Hellenistic or Hellenized Jews, and those who refused to would be hunted down and killed. Um, There was a priest, a Levitical priest, who had not been allowed to serve at the temple because um, Antiochus ended all Jewish sacrifice. Uh, It had been a couple of years since they'd been allowed to go in there. So a Levitical priest Mattathias refused to worship at the the statue. In fact, he went, knocked over the statue. Uh, The priest of Zeus tried to protect the statue. He got knocked over too, hit his head, died of blunt force trauma. And so then Mattathias was being hunted as a murderer. Uh, Guy had five sons and um, pious Jews who called themselves Hasidine or uh, Hasidian Jews joined Mattathias and his sons. Um, so Mattathias led the group so it was a small revolution with Mattathias the priest and his five sons Uh, Mattathias died about a year later and his son Judas I think he was the second son but he was the big tall aggressive one and they nicknamed him the hammer which in their language was Maccabee and so everybody rallied around him and And some of the the people were looking at Judas Maccabee in a messianic type perspective. Um, Antiochus died in 164. In 163, 12,000 Maccabean Jews defeated 30,000 Syrian soldiers and repeatedly the smaller group of Jewish guerrilla fighters successfully defeated larger groups of the Syrian Hellenistic soldiers. Um, Mattathias died in battle in 165. His three sons ruled after him, uh, Judas, Jonathan, Simon, and by one, uh, in 163 the temple was recaptured by the Maccabean Jews. They managed to take, retake the city, get into the temple, and sought to purify it. The Syrian soldiers reinforced and, and they had a counterattack, and so the Jews were, were caught In the temple and they couldn't get out and that's when they went to light the menorah the the lampstand in the uh, the temple and there wasn't enough oil to last and so it would take them seven days to purify another batch of oil but that one day supply lasted eight days and the way the story is it sounds plausible and miraculous and so to this day Jews celebrate Hanukkah in recognition of the miraculous flow of oil in uh, for the lamp that day by 142 uh, the fighting had gone on and the Seleucid King Demetrius finally gave up he just got tired of, of the, the battle and made a peace treaty and so for the first time since 721 Israel existed as its own nation and so from 721 until 142 they didn't have their own nation and then finally they did again in uh, 142 the Maccabean era lasted from uh, 165 until 63 just a little over a um, hundred years um, the men had success uh, that they had retaken jerusalem they cleansed the temple they restored biblical worship the one day supply of oil lasted eight days that event is still commemorated as the feast of dedication or festival of lights hanukkah uh, jesus could be found in the temple during one of those festivals john 10:22 mentions that at the time Of the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon so the Jews gathered around him and said to him how long will you keep us in suspense and so um, Hanukkah is not recorded in the Old Testament because it happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament but it's mentioned in the New Testament as a dedication by the Jews the festival of lights uh, Maccabean family tree, this is an interesting, let me go past that, okay. Uh, at the end of the Old Testament, um, uh, the last king of Judah, the last legitimate king of Judah was uh, the Hebrew Zedekiah, he was Jewish, he was in the line of David. Open up the New Testament and there's this king with the name of Herod, who's an Idumean. Uh, he's not truly Jewish, but he did marry the granddaughter of one of the Maccabeans, And so he married into a Jewish family, but he himself was not. He was of Idumea. He was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman authorities. So at that time, the Romans would appoint uh, local, regional nobles and give them the title king, but they were not supreme king. They were still under the Caesar of of, uh, Rome. Uh, They were vassals, puppet kings. Uh, He married uh, Maramna, the great-great, great-great, great-granddaughter of Mattathias, who had launched the Maccabean Revolution? And so his claim to the throne was through his wife and by the Romans granting it to him. Uh, by the way, uh, Herod was the family name. Each of them also had a first name. But typically in the New Testament, it simply mentions the Herod on the throne. Okay, And so, John, uh, the first Maccabees did not claim to be kings. Um, Simon Maccabeus didn't claim to be king. He was just left in charge when his dad died. But the grandson of Mattathias, John Hyrcanus, became ruler and high priest in 134 B.C. And, he, and he, it was proper for him to be a priest. But he declared himself also the king. So he self-proclaimed himself king. And he was rejected by a group of Jews who called themselves the Separated Ones, the Pharisees. This is where the Pharisees come from it was that group who opposed to the priest proclaiming himself as king. So they separated from him and they, they were the original pious ones or the Hasidids who had supported the Maccabees. So at this point they split from the Maccabees and they call themselves separated from the king. And that's, that's where the Pharisees start. Uh, they were upset because um, John Hyrcanus was not in the line of David. They had no problem with him being a priest because that was legit. He was Levitical. But they opposed him being king because he was not Davidic. But there was a group who called themselves the uh, Zadik, the Righteous Ones. They supported his claim. And we pronounce that word Sadducee today. So the Sadducees came about at that same time because they supported John Hyrcanus as the king at that time and therefore the Sadducees set in motion a pattern where they, concern, they were more concerned about status than they were about um, following the law of Moses or respecting the Davidic line or believing in the miracles of the Bible. Uh, they were more concerned about status. What decision do I make that's pragmatic, that's good for me? Um, his sons and grandsons carried on the title as king of Israel. At the end of the Old Testament, Babylonians brought an end to the nationhood for Hebrews, the southern kingdom of Judah when it was dissolved in 586. Persians permitted the Jews to return, but with subordinate nationhood. In the New Testament, we find Israel still doesn't have nation status, and Judea has a puppet king installed by Rome, and Rome the, the, the Judean area is a province, or it's an imperial tetrarch status, and it changed from time to time. From time to time, uh, the Roman government would restructure uh, the, the outlying territories and they would rename it and redraw the lines and then appoint officials over it. So that was common every few years they would change a structure. And we see that in the new Testament where we wind up with different governors, different tetrarchs, different Kings often because the, the Roman government, uh, would change leaders because it would keep instability out there. So nobody would get entrenched and therefore think they could rise up against Rome. That Maccabean era um, had begun in 165 BC, but by 67 BC, 100 years later, there was a clash between the two sons of Yannis. They were the grandsons of John Hyrcanus. Let's see. On the the family tree in the middle there is Aristobius II and Hyrcanus II. these two guys, uh, brothers, waged civil war against each other for several years, both of them claiming the throne. And so they fought against each other and their followers fought against each other. They're all Jewish, they're all Levitical, and they're all you know in the family of, of the Maccabees, but they fought over who was gonna be the next ruler. And at the time, the Roman general Pompey uh, was Uh, over in the Egyptian area and they invited him to come and mediate their dispute oh yeah that's gonna work out well Pompey marched into Jerusalem with his army and laid a three-month siege of the temple in downtown Jerusalem massacred the priests and he declared you are now under Roman law these two brothers could not settle their own dispute and they invited the Roman general into their city thinking, Oh, he will, he will mediate our dispute as an arbitrator. Uh, that was the end of independent Israel. There are changes in Judaism from the old Testament to the new Testament and it had to do with some questions. What place does our religion have in our lives? How do we regard rulers? whether they're foreign or domestic, what, what, how how much do we have to obey a ruler? Because now they realize we've been under foreign domination for centuries. We had a brief period of liberation, but how'd that go for us? So they, they, they really were discussing among themselves how should we regard foreign and domestic leaders and paying taxes, okay? And then uh, the question was, what are you reading? Because uh, there was uncertainty about w- what, what stuff is proper to read personally and spiritually. And they're still trying to resolve those issues. In the Old Testament, the Jewish identity was rooted in the land of promise, the land that God had promised to Abraham. In the Mosaic law, which God had given at Mount Sinai, rooted in the temple that had been built by Solomon and then rebuilt uh, under the days of Zerubb, under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and then their identity in their sacrificial rituals. You get to the New Testament and Jewish identity is rooted all over the place. You got your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your Zealots, your Nationalists, your Sicarii, your Essenes, your Hellenists. In the Old Testament, Jews worship at a newly built temple in Jerusalem. No synagogues existed in the New Testament. You get to the New Testament, you got synagogues in every community, every neighborhood, and they're worshiping every Sabbath. That's new. Jews in the Old Testament did not worship every Sabbath. That didn't happen. Uh, I think it's a grand idea, but the Old Testament doesn't require them to get together to, um, to read Scripture, to explain Scripture, to pray to God or sing songs to God every Sabbath. But it is a habit that we carry today and it's rooted in that period of time every Friday night, every Saturday morning. Uh, This is the modern day ruins of the Capernaum synagogue, the one down the street from Peter's house. So Peter's house has been identified down the block um, from this particular synagogue right there, which you can go to and walk through and you can worship, sing. Uh, We did. We struck up some choruses and did a Bible study in the same synagogue that Peter and his family would have attended. Just a beautiful place. So at the time between the Testaments, uh, while the Jews were in Babylon, they could not worship as the Mosaic law prescribed because they had no temple and they couldn't offer sacrifices in a temple. And like Daniel, many faithful Jews prayed privately and perhaps even publicly. Uh, We know Daniel did and they had been encouraged to. In 2 Chronicles, there's a clear instruction from God that when you're in exile, pray. Find, Find a way to take time and face toward wherever Jerusalem is. And pray so Daniel did that during the exile there's no Jewish sacrificial system during exile no national identity during exile no royal family during exile no ritual duties for the Levitical priest to form so the so the Levites have got no sacred duties to perform however Jews still had their scripture scrolls Matthew 4 23 he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom And the healing of every disease and every affliction among the people so we read in the New Testament we find a synagogue in virtually every Hebrew community city town village neighborhood we read about synagogues in Israel Nazareth Capernaum and outside of Israel there are synagogues in Ephesus Thessalonica Berea Athens Corinth by the time of Jesus life synagogues were an established institution wherever a community of Jews lived Bible scholars do not know when or exactly where the actual first synagogue began. We know in what region it was. It was it was in the, the Tigris, Euphrates, River Valley during the period of Daniel and Ezekiel. And according to first century rabbinic history, the returning exiles brought back from Babylon and Persia with them, the tradition. They, they came back to their homeland and said, We really got a good idea. Let's get together on a regular basis like we used to do when we were in exile. Most plausible explanation is that Judean exiles carried copies of the law, the prophets, and the writings with them. Somebody had the bright idea of let's get together and read them at somebody's house on Sabbath, and we'll read the stuff out loud. At the end of the evening, somebody probably said, this is nice, can we do this again next week? And then the next week, even more people came, they read some Psalms somebody pulled a guitar they made up a melody they led some singing worship at the end of the evening somebody said this is nice can we do it again or somebody said what do you guys think about bringing some food next time so I'm projecting what may have been possible we don't know exactly we do know the result was all of that so we don't know you know specifically but the result was they had developed that pattern that habit which is a great habit they started meeting Sabbath evening Friday night then again, Sabbath morning, Saturday, uh, on, on Saturday morning, after the reading of the scripture, some people asked for explanation. And the person who had the greatest understanding became known as the rabbi, or the great one, or somebody really great at explaining the, the scripture. Uh, not every Jewish community in the exile had the same scrolls, so each community made copies to distribute, and the copier became known as the sofar, and we pronounce that scribe. And so the rise of the sofarim, the scribes came out of the need to make handwritten copies as accurately and as speedily as possible. They didn't want to compromise accuracy in the speed, but they wanted to to get as many copies done to distribute so that every synagogue had all of the scrolls that they at the time thought were appropriate to be read in the synagogue. And eventually it would have too many people to fit into somebody's house. So they would purchase land, construct a simple structure, a square or a rectangle. Structure would include special storage space to hold the scrolls of the Tanakh. And eventually that that closet where they kept the scrolls became known as the Shrine of the Scrolls. And it would be located front and center. So in a space like this, front and center would be a closet. Uh, Maybe they would adorn with with a nice curtain and, and, and woodwork or something. But it would be the Shrine of the Scrolls to hold the scrolls of their sacred writing. If the idea of meeting weekly originated in the 550s BC, which is likely, then the Jews had 550 years to develop the idea before Jesus was born. But a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, historically, synagogues were up and running everywhere there were Jews, not just in, in the land of Israel, but in every place where Jews had been dispersed, there were synagogues. So in Alexandria, North Africa, where, uh, the Jews who escaped with Jeremiah wound up settling, and all up and down the Nile, anytime you had 10 families, boom, you've got a synagogue. The, the expectation was you had to have a minimum of 10 men, a minion, in order to have an assembly for the reading of scripture. That, it, and the Bible doesn't say that, but that was their tradition. And so as soon as they had 10 families with, led by 10 men, then they would establish a local synagogue, and and that's the way they would do it. So. The Hebrews adopted a Greek term because by then, Greek was the dominant language. The Greek term is synagoge, which means the gathering, the assembly, the ones who get together. Uh, we pronounce it synagogue, that's where it comes from. And they declared the primary functions were house of study, house of prayer, house of fellowship. Almost every synagogue had one of these, a mikvah, a ritual bath, a place where people could go so that they would go through the cleansing process and they would be a water supply and so uh, whether it had to be brought in in buckets or they had underground springs or they ran pipes from the creek uh, they would get fresh water so that uh, there would be baptism they would be the ritual bathing the cleansing with water as a regular part of synagogue life and so the 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 mikvah became a normal part of the synagogue and so there are hundreds of these uh, ritual baths found in the Holy Land and a lot of times the the old synagogue building is gone but they still find this um, so. and by the time of uh, Jesus and the Apostle Paul it became normal that a Hebrew who was traveling on the road would seek out the local synagogue first uh, businessmen uh, people visiting relatives in another town they would look for the local synagogue and connect with the local Jewish community, that that's where they would find Jewish food, lodging, a welcome center, an information center, and find out you know when, when the next time uh, they'll be gathering for worship. Uh, they use the term diaspora, uh, diaspora, uh, the dispersed ones. And that's, that's an old Greek word that indicates uh, the Jews who don't live in the homeland were classified as, as the dispersed ones, the diaspora, scattered, salted around the world, And they stopped calling themselves exiles because they knew they had the freedom to move, so they preferred the term diaspora. And even today, that's the term that most Jews will use to indicate those who don't live in Israel at this time. Um, Over the centuries, the synagogues and the diaspora became the natural community center for the Jewish population in all the neighborhoods. And as the the Jews prospered, they would seek better properties with higher land to build the synagogue. And so in some cities, Traditionally, the highest hill, the Jews would try to purchase that in order to build their synagogue on. Um, When early Christians traveled to the Diaspora in Old Persia, they found synagogues in towns with poles set on the rooftops because if they couldn't get the highest point in land, they would take three poles, strap them together, cover them with animal hide so that Jews could see, okay, the funny building with with the pole or the steeple on top was to identify this is where the people gather for worship. And the idea of having a steeple on a church comes from the synagogues with steeples in Persia. So there are, there are things that have come out of that synagogue experience that went right into the early church and they would just assume this is the way we do it. Okay. In heavily populated towns, there would be a synagogue every 4,000 paces, every 4,000 steps because of the conviction that on the Sabbath, they should not walk more than 2,000 steps from their home to the synagogue, thinking that if you walk more than 2,000 steps, you're working. And so, 2,001 steps was classified as labor. 2,000 and less steps was not labor. And that's not required by God. That's part of the oral tradition of the rabbis. But that's what they would practice. So in Jerusalem or Rome, wherever there were Jews, there would be a synagogue you know, and they would be spaced uh, no more than 4,000 feet apart, 4,000 steps apart. So the time in between the Testaments was a time of, of upheaval and change, time of realignment of, nat- nat- of traditional power blocks. The passing of that old Near Eastern cultural tradition that had been dominant for 3,000 years, and then it becomes more sophisticated, more philosophical. In biblical history, the approximate 400 years that separate the time of Nehemiah and Malachi from the birth of Christ are sometimes known as the intertestamental period, which you studied last week, sometimes called the silent years, but they were anything but silent. I mean, there was a lot of changes happening. Much of it, I think, Daniel foretold. Uh, The events, literature, and social forces of these years would shape the world of the New Testament. For example, the Jewish law was supported by Persian authority in the, at the end of the Old Testament. You open up the New Testament and Jewish law is subordinate to Roman law. The Romans are in charge and the, they decide what Jewish laws can be followed or not. For example, any criminal case that could lead to capital punishment, the Jewish courts were forbidden to try. That if there was a case that, like murder or treason uh, th- that could carry the penalty of Uh, a death penalty, then the Roman courts said, we'll handle that, you aren't aren't qualified to handle it. Understanding the changes in Judaism, the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees had their beginning back when John Hyrcanus became king and they said, that's cool. Um, Over time, they supplied the high priesthood. Under the tradition, the rulers, whoever was the secular ruler would appoint the high priest and for generations it was not a Levite and so the Sadducees had had weaseled their way in with the authorities with the Romans and so they had they'd weaseled in with the Romans to curry favor so that each time it was time to appoint the next high priest the Romans would appoint one of their party and so there was not a Levitical high priest for a hundred years Caiaphas that whole crowd um, none of them were Levitical they were Sadducees Uh, they were after social position economic upper class elite aristocrats they embraced the Roman overlords they sucked up to the Romans they embraced Hellenistic culture and worldview they accepted the Torah but they had a lesser view of the prophets and the writings they didn't trust the Nebiim they didn't like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and those guys Uh, they did not consider the Ketubim to be scripture to them so the writings um, uh, Ruth Ezra Nehemiah uh, Ecclesiastes Proverbs um, the the Sadducees said you know we don't need that stuff Uh, they considered Pharisees to be rigid and legalistic the Pharisees preferred the Levitical priest. Uh, most of them were, were more middle-class. They viewed Romans as a punishment from God for the Jews not upholding the Torah. And so they poked their fingers at the Sadducees and said, you know, the Romans are here because you're not obeying God. Uh, they believed the Torah and the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the, the Ketubim, the writings, and the oral laws. Over 400 years, they had developed over 13,000 Oral laws to supplement the 613 from Sinai so the law of Moses from Sinai had 613 and over 13,000 more were developed by the rabbis over several centuries and it was taught verbally um, they had decided let's not write it down because we we'll, it'll commit us to it and so it was oral teaching that could they could shape and move and alter and they could argue about it well that's not how it goes or that's not how rabbi so-and-so and a lot of times they would say you know Rabbi Akiva from 200 years ago said this is what this law means and so they added to those oral laws in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus would repeatedly say you've heard it said but I say to you you've heard it said but I say to you he is actually addressing some of the oral laws He doesn't correct the Law of Moses, he's correcting the Oral Law's interpretation of the Law of Moses. The Pharisees considered Sadducees to be too liberal and not spiritual enough. Uh, I explained Rabbi yesterday, my great one. The term is not found in the Old Testament, so it really is a New Testament concept. Um, They would operate a discipleship training center. Fathers would pay for their son to become a disciple of their favorite rabbi. Uh, What Jesus did is unique in that he went and he recruited his own, he drafted his own students. The Sadducees had little involvement with synagogues. Uh, Some, there were some exceptions, but most of the Sadducees did not engage in the synagogue experience. Uh, Their involvement with the temple was to uphold the tradition, maintain the power, and maintain the money. (laughs) Because a temple means a whole lot of money flows through. And so for them, it was all about the the power that comes with all the money. Uh, The high priesthood was appointed by politicians and the high priest controlled the temple guard and the temple funds. So the banking was was held strongly by the Sadducees. The Pharisees were active with the synagogue. The Pharisees preferred the synagogue. They went to the temple because that's where the offering was and that's where the sacrifices were. And they would participate in Bible studies at the temple. But they had no say in in the day-to-day sacrifice or in the worship or in the money. Pharisees believed in the immortality of the soul. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the resurrection of the body, the existence of angels and demons, that God would someday send a Messiah. Involvement in the temple was to fulfill their obligation, but they were conflicted over the high priest because they wanted a high priest there, but they wished it could be a Levite and not a, a political appointee. And the reality was, Most of the high priests were, they lived ungodly lives. They just, they publicly were just not spiritual men. They weren't faithful Jews, but they held the power. So they were, they were in that position. Uh, the the um as far as what we call them okay Uh, and and part of it part of that is that the loss of the nationhood of Israel the divided monarchy kingdom in 721 that was the end of there being a country called Israel there still was a country called Judah Uh, but but they called it Judah because the name Israel was already taken (laughs) by the northern group. Um, But remember Israel, before it was called the name of a nation, it was the name of the family. Before it was the name of the family, it was the name of the sons of the guy who got the nickname in the first place, and his original name was Jacob. And so it all started with the nickname. Um, He wrestled with God, so God renamed him, wrestled with God, Israel. And so uh, the, the name is fluid, and, and where it appears in the Bible and when it appears tells you, is it talking about the man or the sons of Israel or Israel as a people, as a family, as a nation of people or as a chunk of real estate, land, a country, nation. And so it, 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 it is fluid in that the way they use the word themselves changed over time. So in the early New Testament, the term Israel is still useful, but they recognize it's not talking about a nation because at that time there was no nation called Israel. So that as Christians, we look back and we don't always see the, the nuances, of distinction of what time is it? And when I use the term Israel, because Paul does when he's talking about um, new Israel, old Israel, uh, he's talking about the people. He's not talking about the land or the country. And so for, for modern readers, that can be confusing. Because we live at a time in which there's actually a, a country in the world called Israel. And they chose that name because that was the historic name. But just because there's a country called Israel today, does not mean that that is the fulfillment of divine prophecy about the people of Israel. And that can get confusing. Okay, so um, another good thing to know about Israel, um, the first period is the Sanhedrin was the ruling council. Uh, Synedria means council or a, a gathering of officials. Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the country. They oversaw both civil and religious cases and they would argue those cases both from the law of Moses and from the oral law that the rabbis taught. They lost authority over capital crimes to Roman overlords the majority of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees a minority were Pharisees Um, and they would elect a president and uh, to to rule for a couple of years and uh, and they would alternate between a, a Sadducee president and a Pharisee president but at least in the first century the Sadducees slightly outnumbered the Pharisees in that council Let's see, scribes were the Sophorim uh, who were, they began during captivity, but they show up in the New Testament as as the ones who were seen as the experts in what does the law of Moses say. And so they're mentioned as scribes, not just as those who write it, but they're supposed to be the best at knowing exactly what are the words in the law of Moses. And um, many of them, there were some of a liberal perspective some of a a conservative expert Uh, let's compromise where we need to stay in power or let's not compromise at all and preserve the scripture and its traditions and then the Herodians were the Jews who complied with Roman overlords for financial or personal gain some of them were Jewish but also Edomians and Edomites and Hellenized expats people who attached their future hope in the good fortune of the Herodian dynasty and many of them were non-religious or pagan, they could put on a show of religion, they could show up at the temple, make an offering, because it was good to make that appearance from time to time. The Essenes were the isolationist Jews, uh, severe self-discipline, uh, monastic, many of them, abstained from indulgence. They valued the Tanakh as word of God. They, they, they were ferocious in that the law, the prophets and the writing are from God. Uh, these are the guys that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, they were out there in, in the Qumran uh, caves because they wanted to stay away from the wickedness of the cities. Uh, they had unconditional obedience in their community. They gave up property rights. They all had one purse. So anybody who joined one of the, the um, communities, uh, it, they, they became communal. They brought their goods. It became part of the community. And they, it, it really was a monastic type of, of context. Um, Publicans uh, tax collectors uh, take taxes from the public Um, under Roman government they would um, they would divide up regions for taxation and then they would hire local people to be the tax collector they would you know wherever they were they would hire some local usually thug who would then hire his own group of thugs and they would go house to house and business to business and collect taxes on assets and income, and so there were regular taxes of all that you have and everything that you earn. And the, you know, some of them would hire criminals, uh, usually non-religious, uh, and they were usually not welcome in the local synagogue, just because tax collectors had a reputation for being wicked and cruel and overbearing and collecting too much and robbing from people. There were exceptions. I mean, historically, we find. Uh, some some writings about some um, tax collectors who were famous for being honest. But that was the exception to the rule. The reputation was, it's like used, used car salesman. Do you know an honest used car salesman? Okay. Well, the reputation is bad. Um, but Jesus encounters several of the tax collectors and um, The idea was if they had thugs working for them, they would shake people down and if the Romans said, from this region, we require you in three months to pay Rome uh, 3,000 denarii. And that tax collector might send his guys out and collect 20,000 denarii so that he could pay Rome and then keep the rest or pay his team for that. And so the reputation was, that Tax collectors were taking six seven eight nine ten times as much as they were legally required to which is why When you read Jesus encountering the tax collector who says I'm gonna repay And he, st- he starts listing how much he's gonna pay back. So he goes above and beyond uh, zealots were milit- militant Patriots uh, extremists nationalists some of them were religious uh, some were willing to use violent means toward their ends. The Sicarii were part of the Zealot. The Sicarii were the extreme assassins. And uh, they, they caused trouble with Rome. Uh, just uh, suicide missions. Uh, Sicarii is, is the, um, the bent blade. Uh, it can be short or long, but they, they would you know, assassinate Roman soldiers. So, they, they, it, so some of the Jews really liked the nationalists, but would try to avoid being seen with them in public. Um in the Greco Roman world during the early Hellenistic expansion, polytheism was widespread and nearly universal. Yes. I just have a question. Yes. If like tax collectors were taking too much
0: money, then and the Romans were kind of like in charge, I guess, why wouldn't the Romans like do something? Or did they
1: not care as long as they were like receiving their money? Long as they got paid. It it was it was like um It's like in modern times, uh, a a big company has salesmen, and each salesman is given a zone, a region. And that's his region to work, and as long as he meets his quota, we're good. The Romans would create a zone and say, you know, you you have that zone. You have to bring us this much money. Now, we'll see in three months. And so at that point, uh, their greater concern is getting the money that they demanded, Not so much that it's being done in a fair and judicious way. So many of the publicans had a reputation of not being fair. So during this Hellenistic expansion, polytheism was normal. Having one God, not normal. Uh, During the Roman Republic, before it was an empire, the Roman Republic from 600 B.C. to 100 B.C., Genuine belief in the gods and goddesses of Greece often harmonized the Greek deities with Roman beliefs. So when Rome took over the Greek culture, they looked at the Greek gods and said, oh, that's really similar to ours. And so they associated uh, Jupiter with Zeus and um, uh, Astarte with Helena and and that sort of thing. Now, with the Greco-Roman deities, their attitude was in, in three parts. Uh, Let me appease the gods, please don't hurt me. Uh, Let me see if the god will patronize me, please watch over me. Or I want you to hurt somebody. I I, I will make an offering or I'll pay the deity to curse my enemy. And those were the three basic categories. Uh, Please don't hurt me, please watch after me, please curse that person that I can't stand. It wasn't about forgiveness of sins. It wasn't about kindness or loving kindness or relationship. It wasn't about being the family of God, the people of God. Uh, It wasn't about grace. Normally those other religions of polytheism, they didn't include those factors. Whereas the word of God through the Hebrew prophets and writers was about, I will be your God, you be my people, loving kindness, forgiveness of sins, walk together, it was about relationship. During that uh, Roman period, the the genuine belief in the gods and goddesses of Greece and Rome was giving way to increasing agnosticism. So agnosticism became another option among the Romans, especially the elites, where they would keep on an air of of, um, having rituals with multiple deities when in fact being pretty much agnostic about it and uh, and moving more toward uh, superstition or philosophy. Um, the growth in superstition and astrology increased during the Roman Empire, and the growth in embracing a philosophy that did not require a deity. So um, Epicurism, uh, Stoicism, uh, the, 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 the other isms that were a, a philosophical view rather than a spiritual view. Galatians 4.4 says that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under God. And so God God had looked at world history. God had already told his prophets that he would bring into the world a son, a child to be born. Government would be upon his shoulder. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. So God's already anticipated a Messiah to be born. He reveals to Paul that when the time had fully come, in the fullness of time, at the right time, that God had said, God sent his son, born of the woman, at the right time. And, I, and, and so the birth of Jesus happened perfectly timed. And God is the one who said, Now I'm going to pull the trigger. We look back and we see, oh, that period of time, perfect, because it was different. Things had changed. Uh, It's been called the Pax Romana. Um, I left off the A. Pax Romana, uh, the Peace of Rome, lasted from the reign of Caesar Augustus, and he ruled uh, 27 B.C. until A.D. 14, until the rule of Caesar Marcus Aurelius, A.D. 161 to 180. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was the character in Gladiator the old king who was killed by his son, Okay, that was Marcus Aurelius. So the peace of Rome was in that period of time when you could have safe travel throughout the empire. They built roads everywhere, good roads. And I've been on some of those Roman roads that are still in decent condition because they were well planned in the right place and they patrolled the roads. And so not, not only were there roads and bridges, I mean how many creeks and rivers and streams that, that people would be, get washed away in or struggle just to get across, and the Romans liked their bridges and they built good bridges. In in Bruges, Belgium, uh, they've got uh, streams and rivers and canals, uh, and that had been a Roman city back in 200 A.D. in Belgium, and there is uh, there, there are two bridges. You can you can stand there at the canal and you can see two bridges. Um, there's there's the old bridge. They don't allow anybody to walk on. And then there's the new bridge that you're allowed to walk on. And it's made out of stone, it's got an arch underneath, and it's, just, it's, it's a pedestrian bridge now, but it used, it used to go across with horse and carriages and chariots <coughs> and stuff. I went to the new bridge, built in 400 A.D. That's the new bridge, built in 400 by the Romans, and it's still a safe bridge. The other one was pre-Christ. You couldn't walk on it, it wasn't stable, It was you could still see it. That was the old bridge. The new bridge was from, Fort. So anyway, the Romans built roads and bridges and they had patrols on those roads, which meant you could get from place to place and you could carry animals and and you could put goods and, and, and supplies on carts and they were safe. Uh, before that time, not many good roads or bridges and you put your own life in your hand when you're out Between towns and cities being attacked during the Pax Romana. No, they did not allow uh, Highway piracy. I just the, the enforcement which meant you could pretty much safely move like if if you were taking a collection to help another community who was going through hard times and Your neighborhood and your group of people had raised a whole mess of money You could put it in a pouch and you and your buddies could travel on the road and feel safe on the road just don't tell people you're carrying money but you didn't have fear so that when Paul was encouraging the churches for the famine relief in Jerusalem for the people for their for their kinfolk that are starving to death they had no trouble collecting the money and putting it in pouches and going on the roads for fear of being attacked and being robbed because of the Pax Romana safe travel language the Romans conquered the Greek world but the Greek language conquered the Romans got it and, and they tried to spread Latin didn't work so they used Latin officially as their government language but Greek everywhere else I mean if, if you traveled anywhere Greek is what was spoken I mean Greek language just was dominant throughout the Roman Empire and they never successfully replaced it with Latin and it's still a better language it's it's anyway uh, that language, the widespread use of Greek, meant they didn't have to. They, they didn't have to write the New Testament in fifty languages. Choose one. Well, the one that was spoken by more people in the Mediterranean part of the world—Europe, Asia, and Africa—everything, everything within a thousand miles of the Mediterranean, they were speaking Greek. So, uh, religious tolerance. The Romans at that time did not have this this extremist attitude that the Hellenistic people did I mean, some of the Hellenistic people were almost Taliban in their extremism. You've got to embrace our stuff. The Romans, they were more laid back. Now they wanted legitimate philosophy and legitimate religion. And they actually had a, 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 um, a list of legitimate religions. And so there were some religions that they really opposed and they didn't make the legit list when Christianity started their back door was we're actually Jews and so the original Christians came under the legitimacy of the of the Jewish religion so uh, Legal oversight if there's an issue. There's a high court. You can appeal to when when push came to shove. What did Paul do? he claimed his right as a citizen, as a Roman citizen, and that paid off. And so, when the time had fully come, in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman so that the result was the proclamation and spread of the gospel was enabled because of the circumstances of the day that did not exist 50 years before and did not exist 150 years later. It was the perfect time for, or the expansion of the good news of the kingdom of God the way it did happen. So that was in, in the Roman period, when, when the, f- the, the first Herod, who called himself the great one, the only, the only person who called him Herod the Great was himself. I mean he wasn't a great guy. This is the domain that Rome assigned to him. okay? So th- this is what he ruled over. And he only ruled as long as he he curried favor with the Roman authorities. Um, When he passed away, Rome said, okay, that's just too much territory for for one of these, we can't trust one of these guys. And so they broke it up among uh, the brothers, um, let's see, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus, and created these um, uh, other magistrates and some small... Uh, provinces and uh, tetrarchies of the day and they would shift the borders and rename them provinces when when they needed to align somebody's power now see the Sea of Galilee up there several times Luke makes the point that Jesus left where he was because there was opposition growing and he would get in a boat and he would cross over and Luke will mention another village that he went to Sea of Galilee at this time is now bordered by three different provinces, which means if he needs to avoid the local authorities, he needs to evade the police, the soldiers. All he has to do is get on a boat, and in a few minutes he's in a different state, a different province, a different tetrarchy. And he does it consistently, and it's wise. He's avoiding conflict until his day. I mean, Jesus is clear, son of man's gotta go, gotta be handed over, gotta be arrested, gotta be, uh, beaten got to die, but not until he's ready and until he's ready he, he, he keeps slipping from one place to another and that that's not a coincidence there. I, I think he's on purpose He knows that there's an uprising against him He want, they somebody wants to have a conspiracy or a stone him or something So he knows when to get out of town and when to actually cross the border into the next area So he does that which I, it's just he's being shrewd that that's what that is